Well, good morning, Redeemer. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be back with you. Um, I don't know about you, I was blessed these last four weeks uh, by the men who preached for us, from Steve and Keith and Brian and Stanley, and each of their messages as they continue to faithfully teach through the Gospel of Mark, had something to say to me personally, and I entrusted it did to you as well. So, uh, would you just join me in thanking them for, uh, yeah, please. Uh, but it is good to be back, and as I come back, we're opening a new series of messages today. So whether you're here with us in person, or whether you're tracking with us online, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 6, which is where we're going to spend some time over the course of these next couple of months together. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, as we start this series of messages on spiritual warfare and the armor of God and being armed and prepared for the advances and assaults of the enemy, I think this is a timely series of messages for at least two reasons. Probably more, maybe some in your life that I don't know about, but at least two reasons. First of all, um, I don't have to persuade you, I don't think, that we are living in unprecedented days in our nation with regards to everything happening around us. Okay, so everything happening and around us. Um, I don't want to discount all of that as being merely humanistic, naturalistic explanations for it. I do believe that our enemy is active and he's prowling and he's trying to push back uh, the advancements of God's kingdom and the gospel through all means and measures at his disposal. And so I could, we could spend a lot of time talking about that this morning, but then we wouldn't have time left for what I want to say. Uh, but there's things happening around us that we cannot turn a blind eye to, and we cannot dismiss. But second of all, I believe this series of messages is timely because of where God is leading us. So over the course of these last several months, uh, our elders, as we prayed through um, the direction for our church and where God has us now, what the future might look like for us. Uh, so just so you know, the, the kind of catalyst for those conversations has been the five-year anniversary that we have not yet celebrated um, and looking forward to what the next five years might look like for us as a church. And we believe uh, that as we look forward to the next five years, that God is leading us to begin to explore uh, opportunities that might be available here in this community to purchase land and to begin to initiate movement toward a permanent footprint in Fate, Texas. And so as a result of that, uh, we have initiated contact with a, uh, a uh, what's the word? I'm, commercial real estate broker. That's what they're called. Commercial real estate broker. We've taken a look at several pieces of property. He's running down uh, information on those for us as we speak. And so I invite you into that journey with us prayerfully, uh, that the Lord would direct us, that He would guide us, that He would open doors for us that no man can shut. Uh, and that He would make a way. Because uh, we would love to see, not just for our convenience and comfort as a church, to have a place that we could call home, but also an operations base for ministry in this community to be able to function out of seven days a week and have doors open and be able to serve the needs of this community as it grows around us. And so would you pray through that with us? If you have connections with people in the community who just want to give land away, you know what I'm saying? They just are generous people. They just want to give it away. Then let us know and let them know. But listen, as we begin to look forward to that, you'll hear more about that as we move forward in the rest of this 
year. But as we begin to move in that direction, here's one of the things that I do know, is that every instance, at every turn, whenever the kingdom of God begins to advance, whenever churches are being planted, whenever leaders are being raised up, whenever ministry is being developed, that there is someone who stands against it. And so I believe it's timely for that reason as well. So in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, we'll read down through verse 13 this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy of it in front of you. So just join us as we read together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now there's four things I want us to see out of this text this morning. And we're just going to dive right in because we've got a, a long way to go and a short time to get there. Okay? So the four things I want us to see, the first one is this, is that whenever it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to the need for this particular armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, he says that you need armor because the battle is real. If I were to tag this text with a title, that's the name of this sermon. The battle is real. It's a real battle. And in this real battle, we have a personal and powerful enemy. A personal and powerful enemy. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says that the opponent, that our adversary, his name is the devil and those under his command. The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, the devil himself. Now the Bible reveals the devil to be a created being. Okay, He's not... He's not eternal the way that God is eternal. He was someone, he was a being that God created who once was in the service of God, but he couldn't stay in his lane. You know what I'm saying? He just couldn't stay in his lane. So he wanted to elevate himself to the place of God. And as a result of that, he falls from grace, takes a third of the heavenly host with him. And the biblical authors, when they write about this personal created being called the devil or Satan, they describe him with some vivid imagery. He's called a serpent, or a dragon, or a lion. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. The prince of the power of the air, as Brian read for us earlier in Ephesians 2. He's called the evil one in Matthew 13. The father of lies in John 8. The ruler of this world in John 14. An angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. And the adversary in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's called the adversary of you and I as God's people, but of God Himself because He stands against everything that God stands for. Everything that God is aiming to create and renew, Satan is looking to undermine and destroy. In fact, we're told in John chapter 10 that the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's his aim. He wants to take everything that God would want to bless you with. He wants to kill you. He wants to crush you and destroy you. He's a powerful and personal enemy who stands against you. In fact, every advance, every advance of... The history, and through the history of Revelation, Satan is looking to abort that advancement. 
Let me, let me give you a few examples from the Bible. I got Bible for this, okay? From the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of our first parents, they had not been in the garden long whenever the serpent slithers up and begins to tempt and deceive and distort and twist the truth. Because God had given our first parents a mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, to create culture that would reflect the glory of God. And here comes the serpent to distort, twist, and deceive. Because he opposes, he wants to abort everything that God wants to create. In Daniel, we see in Daniel chapter 10 that as Daniel pleads with God for assistance and has this vision and uh, the angel shows up and says, hey, listen, I got held up. I got jammed up a little bit by the prince of Persia, but God dispatched Michael to come to my aid to render some reinforcements so that we could overthrow him and I could come render the assistance that you've requested. Right? So God's working and revealing. In the New Testament, you've got in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul gives the qualifications for elders, I find this interesting and so relevant to today. But in 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the qualifications for elders, he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, when God's aiming to raise up leadership within the church, the devil is aiming to trap them. And to disgrace them before the world. I I don't know if that's speaking to anybody right now, but listen, in the the context of the world that we live in, the churches, the prevalence of ministry leaders who have fallen, disqualified themselves from ministry on account of their actions, on account of their words, on account of their behaviors. Listen, Satan is laying a trap for leadership that God is wanting to raise up. New pastors who would go plant churches to a a person. I experienced some of that here. But to a person, they wrestle with things that seem to be harder than they should be. And ministry more painful than it ought to be at times. I know men who went planted churches and as soon as the doors opened, their wife was diagnosed with cancer. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. So listen, there's, there, God wants to destroy the leadership that God's aiming to raise up. It may not come to it as a shock to you, but listen, among pastors, the rates of depression and suicide have been on the rise over the course of the last 30 years. Where does that come from? We have an adversary. And in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to come back to this before the end of this morning, but in Revelation chapter 12, you see that Satan is present at the birth of Jesus Himself whenever John has this vision in heaven and he sees a woman who is clothed with the sun and 12 stars around her head and she's she's in the labor pains trying to push out this child. But we're told that simultaneously there's a great red dragon who stands ready to devour the child as it comes out of her womb. Because Satan is the adversary of the purposes of God and the advancement of God's redemptive purposes, Satan always aims to abort. Everything new that God wants to create, everything everything that God wants to renew and restore, everything that God wants to heal and save, Satan stands against and opposed to. He's opposed to the forward movement of God's mission and the further development 
of your holiness and sanctification. He doesn't want to see you become more like Jesus tomorrow than you were today. He wants to see you stall out in your process of sanctification. And He wants to see you stall out where you are and backslide to where you were. That's His aim. He wants to make ministry difficult and painful because He abhors Gospel clarity. And He abhors Gospel culture in the church. As a result, He actively works to diminish that clarity by planting seeds of heresy with false teachers in the life of congregations. And He actively works to destroy Gospel culture by undermining unity in the life of local bodies. See, what the devil wants to do is he wants to erode your confidence in the Word of God and he wants to erase compassion from among the people of God. So that gospel doctrine would be muddied and gospel culture, gospel culture would be a laughing stock to the world. Now, listen, let me just say this. Not all difficulty can be attributed to the devil. Okay? So the old adage of the devil made me do it doesn't always stand up to scrutiny and evidence, right? In our culture in particular, we have a tendency, we, don't, we have a tendency not to stay on the road of biblical revelation, but to fall off in one, one of two ditches when it comes to the devil, okay? When it comes to the devil, the first ditch we have the tendency to fall off into is that the devil is nowhere. Because we live in a post-enlightenment era. Now you're like, what does that mean? That means this, during the Enlightenment, everything had a humanistic or naturalistic explanation. As the advances of sciences were, they were making leap, growing by leaps and bounds. And so everything could be explained by this closed system that we live in. There are laws that are at work in nature that explain everything that happens to, in, and around us. That's what the Enlightenment taught us. There's naturalistic explanations for everything. So we're prone to dismiss talks of powers and principalities and rulers and spiritual forces in the cosmic realms. The devil is nowhere. So everything can be explained by psychology. Everything can be explained with natural causes and humanistic explanations. That's one ditch we can run off into. The other ditch is to say the devil's everywhere. But listen, He is not omnipresent, people, okay? He is not God. But we assume that He's everywhere, okay? We give Him too much credit, right? It's kind of like uh, the, the I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my, maybe some of my true colors, but I don't know if you remember the movie The Water Boy, okay? With Bobby Boucher's mama, okay? Growing up in Louisiana, listen, they showed, I mean, they put on display the best of us in that movie, um, but listen, we, don't, we didn't all have alligators in our backyards, right? just some of us. Uh, but, but in that movie, she, everything to her was the devil, right? It was the devil. Foosball is the devil, right? That was, so she, her son couldn't play football or foosball because it was the devil, right? And so some people see everything painted through this broad stroke of Satan, right? That's another ditch to run off into. So it's not that he's everywhere, and it's not that he's nowhere, but he's active and adversarial towards everything in God's purposes. This is why I think some things, as I said before, are harder than they should be, and you just want to throw in the towel. You just want to quit and walk away. 
This is why marriages can be harder than they should be. And you just say, I want out. At times, this is why things are scarier than they should be. And you become paralyzed. and You don't know. You can't act. You can't do anything. Because you're petrified and frozen in place. Yes, it should be scary. There should be some challenges there. It becomes amplified in your life. Oftentimes, He will take things that happen in us or natural emotions that we experience and He will turn the dial and amplify them to make them louder so that we become paralyzed or petrified. And it's also why when things are going better than they should be, you swell up with pride and assume that no one else could do what you've done. Those people are so lucky to have you. See, in all these instances, you can catch a whiff of the devil's work. You and I have a personal and powerful enemy who is at war with God's people and God's purposes. But where does this battle take place? Let me tell you this morning. The battle takes place in you, it takes place around you, and it takes place among you. In you, around you, and among you. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Now, when I was a kid, I can remember growing up watching the old Roadrunner cartoon. I don't know about you guys, but um, I probably watched every episode of the Roadrunner cartoon. But in that cartoon, there were two main characters. Some of you are like, who's the Roadrunner, right? But there were two main characters in the Roadrunner cartoon. You had Roadrunner and you had Wiley Coyote, okay? Two main characters, one basic plot line in every single episode, okay? The basic plot line in every single episode of the cartoon was that Wiley Coyote was trying to capture, kill, and eat the Roadrunner. But Wiley Coyote didn't depend upon his natural instincts to do that, his natural animal instincts to do that, like hunting and stealth. He depended upon all these complex contraptions that he ordered from Acme, okay? So there was all kinds of crates of dynamite and mechanisms and springs. Uh, He was always trying some kind of harebrained scheme in order to capture, kill, and eat the Roadrunner. And every single time, they would backfire on him. Right? And so instead of launching the roadrunner into the cliff, he got launched into the cliff. Instead of the roadrunner falling off the cliff, he would fall down off the cliff. He'd always have this little parasol or umbrella, and he'd get crushed by boulders and anvils that were falling on him constantly. But every single episode, he had a scheme. And most of those schemes, listen, they were just reinventions of the scheme that he used the last episode with some different expressions. And so he got the name Wiley Coyote, and here's why. Because in the Old English, the word wild, W-I-L-E, it meant the scheme, or a con, or a hoax, or a trickster. And listen, whenever it comes to the devil, I want you to know that he is the wiliest of them all. The Bible says that he has schemes. So what are some of the schemes that the devil employs? In the same way that Wile E. Coyote always had a scheme and it was just kind of a regurgitation of the previous scheme with a new expression, so also Satan, he is, he is not one who creates, one who destroys, and he uses the same things over and over again in every generation. They just take on new clothing. So here's some of the schemes of the devil. First of all, deception. Deception. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, whenever... God comes to our first parents in the garden subsequent to them taking of the tree and eating the fruit. 
and their eyes being opened, covering up their shame. When God pursues them, He asks the woman, He said, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, what? The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Over and over again, He employs the scheme of deception And oftentimes what he will do is he will molest the truth, manipulate the truth, give half-truths, right? So that it sounds, that sounds kind of right, right? But ultimately underneath it is an underbelly of destruction as you embrace it. He wants to deceive you. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul speaks of unbelievers, he says that they've been blinded by the God of this world. The God of this world has kept them from seeing the truth and beauty of Christ. He's deceived them. He employs that scheme in our lives constantly with lies. Right? He wants you to believe that God is not good. God is not glorious. God is not gracious. And He undermines those truths with lies. Second of all, We'll talk about that more next week. But accusation. Accusation. In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah, the prophet, has this vision and he sees into the heavens. And what he sees in this vision is recorded in Zechariah 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. To accuse him. To bring up his record. And say, oh, Joshua, there was, remember that sin? Joshua, remember that shortcoming? Joshua, remember that failure? Joshua, remember that lack of faith? Joshua, remember. He's accusing and accusing and accusing. Alright? In fact, he's called the accuser of our brothers in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And there are times whenever he whispers into your ear, who are you to go to him? After what you did? After where you went? After what you thought? After what you said? Who are you to go to Him? Accusation. Another scheme of the devil. Third, division. Division. I want you to notice the context that precedes the discussion of spiritual warfare and the armor of God in the book of Ephesians. Let me give you a quick flyover. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul outlines gospel doctrine. And then in Ephesians 4 to 6, he draws out the implications of that gospel doctrine with godly devotion of how we ought to respond to the truth of what God has done on our behalf in Christ. In chapter 4, as it begins to unfold for us what godly devotion looks like, He appeals to the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they have received. To be built up in love, grounded in doctrine, ever maturing toward the fullness of Christ's likeness, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Then in chapter 5, he appeals to the church to walk in love and live in in the light, having nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and to embrace God's ordained design for marriage. In chapter 6, He appeals to children and parents. The relationships there along with bondservants and masters and those relationships. See, listen, prior... Some of you are like, okay. Prior to his discussion of spiritual warfare, 
Paul spends a portion of chapter th- of three chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, talking about relationships in the church, relationships in the home, and relationships to the broader world. Why? Then does he then say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally. In other words, let me sum up everything I've said to you. Be strong in the Lord, the strength of His might. Put on the armor of God. I believe it's because so much, listen church, so much of this invisible battle takes place in the context of visible relationships. In the context of visible relationships with other people. In 427, Paul says, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Some of are like, man, I hear that every marriage series somebody preaches, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the very next thing he says in Ephesians 4 is this, and give no opportunity to the devil. Why does he say that? Because if you let your anger simmer in the context of relationships, what you're doing is you're opening a door to the devil to allow that bitterness to fester and for make, to... to Feed your mind with lies that say that is irreconcilable. You cannot move past those differences. This relationship has been has been uh, it's, 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 it's been disposed of. Give no opportunity to the devil. Listen, it, it, so much of this invisible battle takes place in the visible relationship. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis is. Is you know he's very quick to say at the outset in the preface he's like listen um, this is this is some of this is imagination okay me posturing maybe what this might look like in the context but it's a elder demon coaching a a, a a younger demon on how to tempt and on how to deceive and on how to thwart God's purposes in his people. And in one of the letters that the elder demon writes to the younger, he says this, he says, in civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow to the face. To keep this game up, you and Glubos, who must be some other principality, must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of a double standard. Your patient, which he calls the Christians, your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time, judging all of his mother's utterances, and you can replace that with wife or a husband's or children's or family member or a co-worker or church member, that all his own utterances be taken at face value while judging the other's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. Is that preaching to anybody yet? She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced, or very nearly convinced, that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing where I I simply ask her what time dinner will be, and she flies into a temper. Once the habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending, and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. 
in the context of relationships. The devil works to bring division. It's one of his schemes. Fourth, and finally this morning, suffering. Suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we're reminded to be sober-minded and watchful. Where our adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, while the serpent is sneaky, right? He can slither up and whisper and deceive and twist and manipulate through. The Bible likens the devil in 1 Peter chapter 5 not to a crouched lion who is hunting in the grass, but to a roaring lion. There's a difference between those two. Crouched lion might be trying to sneak. A roaring lion doesn't care if you know that he's there. Suffering is real. And it's painful. And it's hard. You know, in this life, oftentimes, some of you know what I'm talking about, oftentimes you only get a handful of those people in your life who, though they're not from the same mother, they're like a brother. And yesterday, I had to sit with one of those men's wives to plan his funeral. He was diagnosed with a very aggressive type of cancer in December of 2019, and he lost that fight early Friday morning. And listen, while my heart rejoices for him, because his faith has been made sight, I'm a little jealous. And I find myself praying more and more. The same thing that the, John says at the end of the Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Jesus, come. My heart rejoices for Him, but listen, at the same time, it's hemorrhaging for His wife, who's not yet 40 years old. His two kids, who aren't out of elementary school, in fifth and first grade. In the midst of this, in this last week, I want to tell you that I can hear the voice of the enemy saying, if God's so good, how do you let this happen? How could he stand by and watch that? And listen, I've had to wake up every day and say, not today, devil. Not today. You will not take this suffering and hijack it for your own purposes. And I know you won't hijack it in the life of his wife and his children. Because their faith is probably stronger than mine. That's what the devil aims to do. He's always scheming. Always. And look at how these schemes work out in our lives. He uses these schemes in us, around us, and among us. He uses these schemes to entice our flesh. As you pass by on the interstate and see a billboard for an adult entertainment establishment in downtown Dallas, men and your mind begins to wander as he uses those schemes to entice your flesh. 
and lust, as He entices your flesh towards greed and pride, as He entices your flesh toward this, this shame that you just want to live under and isolate yourself from everyone who is around you. He uses them in you, church. The battle's taking place. He also uses them around us to set up systems and structures opposed to the rule of God in this broken world. Listen, I want you to know that in the ancient world, child sacrifice was real and it was evil. It was evil. The transatlantic slave trade, the three-fifths doctrine, the Jim Crow South was evil. The Holocaust and the gassing of Thousands of Jewish people in Germany was evil. The Rwandan genocide and human trafficking, they are evil. These are not just merely tragic events. These are perpetuations of evil. Listen to what one author said. He says, where does all this evil in the world come from? Man's natural inhumanity to man hardly seems a sufficient explanation for evil on this scale. Is it possible there's another factor, a supernatural spiritual dimension to all of this moral depravity? If you believe that the universe you see around you is all there is, then you have no rational basis on which to be shocked and outraged at evil. But what we call evil must then be interpreted as an emotional response within us to dangerous things triggered by evolutionary biology. But the Bible has a richer and deeper explanation for the sad world we find ourselves in an explanation that allows us to recognize the profound reality of evil and the invisible spiritual forces that lie behind its constant reappearance in different shapes and different forms. Battles happening around us as well, church. But at times it also happens among us. As the devil wants to use his schemes among God's people in the church to undermine their unity, and their gospel witness. He's wily. He's wily. So what do we do about it? Two things and we're done. First of all, first of all, you've got to get dressed, church. You've got to get dressed. Look, the point of this series of messages is not merely to understand the armor, but to use the armor. Right? In verse 11, Paul admonishes the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. And in verse 13, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. In other words, you can't just have one piece. Some are like, I got the Bible, I got the sword of the Spirit. All right, yes. But you also need the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. You need the breastplate of righteousness. You need the belt of truth. You need the full arsenal that God has provided for us. If we think that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, which is what we're called to do in this text, we're talking about that more in the series, to stand. If we think we can stand against his schemes without what God has provided, we are fools. Because you cannot win a gunfight with a knife. Right? You can't. So get dressed. See, listen, I, I remember when I first started doing a little bit of woodworking. And so, I, you know, I was like, okay, I need a saw. I think that's what those things were called, right? I need a saw, something I can cut wood with. So I bought a saw. And then over the time, I accumulated, you know, more and more tools over the last seven, eight, nine years. And as I've, as I've but before I did any, anything with wood, I could have looked at all the tools on the shelf and I said, oh, that, that's, a, 
that's a circular saw, or that's a miter saw, that's a table saw. I could have looked at the disc sander and the belt sander and the detail finish sander. I could have looked at the, the framing gun and the, the finishing gun. I could have looked at all these things, like the framing, like the square, you know, make sure everything's square and the, the tape measure. But, but all of these tools, I could have explained to you what they were, but I didn't know how to use all of them. And the whole point of this series, church, is not that you would be able to intellectually just describe what the belt of truth is, but that you would fasten it around your waist and make it the center of your life. It's not just that you would understand what the breastplate of righteousness is, but that you would plead the blood of Jesus every time an accusation is thrown your direction from the enemy. It's not just to understand the shield of faith, but that you would raise it every time the fiery arrows are being thrown in your direction. That you would use it, not just understand it. You would use it against his deceptions. You would use it against his accusations, his division, against the hijacking of your suffering for his ends and purposes. And that you would use it every single day because this battle is going to continue either until the finality of our death or our future deliverance at Jesus' return. It's going to be a daily battle. And in the same way, at least I hope the same way, that you would not get up in the morning and go to work naked. That you will not get up in the morning and go to war naked. So get dressed. Each week, I'm going to be admonishing you to take these things up, to put these things on and use them. But second of all, or fourth point, second response, however you want to number those things. Be strong. In verse 10, we're admonished to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Paul says. In other words, you and I are not adequate or sufficient to fight this battle in and of ourselves. In verse 12, in fact, we're told the battle is a wrestling match. In other words, it's up close and personal. The word wrestle here describes this contest between two parties in which each endeavors, listen, to throw down the other, and then the victor is determined by whoever's laying prostrate on their back with his opponent with their hand on their neck. That's how they wrestled in the ancient world, right? Kind of like UFC, okay? Right, so it's an it's a up-close and personal wrestling match. Listen, I don't know if you grew up watching wrestling, or wrestling, right? I did. Watched Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, all these cats, right? And so um, I can remember watching wrestling and every single episode of wrestling and every single match, there was always, listen, always a heel. You know what a heel is in wrestling? It's like the bad guy, like the villain, okay? So he's the one who's like always pulling like brass knuckles out of his back of his shorts and he's getting chairs out from underneath the ring and crashing them on top of people, right? You got the heel and you got the hero. You got the one who is like just this upstanding guy who never kind of sneaks up on people. He's always, you know, acting with integrity in the ring. So you got the heel and the hero and every, it seems like every single match they're pitted against each other. And some point in the episode, the heel is always going to run out and try to overthrow the hero. And listen, I want you to know that there, 
the, the devil, like some of you are familiar with the term goat, right? Greatest of all time. He is the greatest heel of all time. The most despicable heel of all time. But I want you to know there's a hero in this match as well. And it's not you or I. It's not you. It's not me. Listen, we don't fight for victory, but from victory because Satan has been cast down. And listen, if you, if you get a hold of what I'm about to say to you, it will be powerful in your life. Not because I said it, because the Bible says it. In Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to read to you a lengthy text. Make a few comments and then we're going to be done. But listen to what, listen to what John sees in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, and, I, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. I told you. She gave birth to a male child, one to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she could be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Listen, in the Old Testament, you see Satan had access to the throne room of God to accuse God's people. You see him walking there in the heavens in the book of Job. You see him in Zechariah chapter 3. Here we're told that he's been the accuser of our brethren in the heavens. However, church, through the work of Christ, a monumental shift has occurred. You see, when Jesus was born, He lived, He died, and He rose again. And following His resurrection, He commissions His disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, you see that He is ascending into heaven on a cloud. And as He ascends into the heavens on a cloud, He's passing by the rulers and the powers and the authorities and the spiritual forces of this present darkness, and Satan himself, and he's saying, bro, it's time for you to get yours. And then he's seated at the right hand of God. That's what we're told. He's caught up to God and to His throne. He's seated there. And the robe that he took off, that he once wore from Isaiah chapter 6, whose train filled the, the, the temple, he dawns again as he's seated at God the Father's right hand. And then war erupts in heaven. 
as the dragon and his army makes war against God and Michael and his army defeat the dragon and they cast him out. They throw him down. They bar him from having access to heaven. So I don't believe what's what's being described here was the, the fall of Satan whenever he falls from heaven after exalting himself with pride. I believe that it was a post-ascension casting down, barring Satan from accessing God any longer so that Satan can no longer stand before God and say, look at what they did. Because Jesus says, listen bro, I'm tired of hearing it. I'm tired of hearing it. Because my death, my blood, the blood of the Lamb, my blood has covered. The charges against them have been dropped. They've been dismissed for those who are in Christ. And so, though you used to be the heavenly prosecution, you are no longer the DA of heaven. You've been fired. No longer needed. So Satan can no longer boldly go before the throne to accuse you, but now the author of Hebrews says you can go boldly before the throne with your sin. Satan can't take your sin boldly before the throne anymore, but you can. And you can find help in your time of need. Listen, if if this was a shouting church, I'd be running out on 66 right now. To whatever He accuses you of. Whatever He whispers into your ear. Know that you have confidence before God. He's won the victory. And the victories that He's won is given to you through faith in Him, church. And listen, The armor that He provides. Jesus is the hero. He's won the victory. And He won the victory by wearing the armor. I want you to know that. It wasn't like Jesus came down and He's just like, I'm going to flex out all my God muscles and just kind of roll with this life. No, He puts on the armor. In fact, it's described in the Old Testament. Listen to what one author said. He said, this armor gives, God gives us to defend and protect us against Satan's onslaught is the armor that he's already worn in the decisive battle on our behalf. We fight and stand firm against Satan only in the strength that comes from the victory that Christ has already won for us. That is why each of the various pieces of armor points us to Christ. The belt of truth is the belt that girds the Messianic King in Isaiah 11.5. The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation come from the divine warrior's arsenal in Isaiah 59. The feet shod with the Gospel readiness are the feet of those who proclaim the arrival of the Messiah's kingdom in Isaiah 52. God Himself is the shield of faith as He described Himself in Genesis 15. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the weapon wielded by the promised servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49. What God clothes us with is nothing less than His own armor. The same armor that Christ has already worn on our behalf in His lifelong struggle with the mortal enemy of our souls, Satan himself. And unlike armchair generals who watch fighting from a safe distance, Jesus has won the, worn the armor Himself and won the victory. So you fight from victory, not for it. So get dressed, church. Get ready. Because I tell you, every time you talk about spiritual warfare, (laughs) Satan gets more wily. 
Listen, I'll, I'll close with this. Justin called me at 10 a.m. this morning. He was like, hey, man, I just went home to pick up my wife and my kids, and uh, my car won't start. <laughs> Is that coincidence? I don't know. Right? Do you think the enemy wants us to turn our attention to, and anyone who's joining us online this morning for the stream, turn their attention to his tactics and schemes and to be admonished to get dressed and be strong? No, he doesn't want that. But get ready. I don't know how it will manifest itself in our church, how it will manifest itself in your life, but I know that Christ has won the victory and He's prepared us for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for the way that You speak clearly to us. Father, may we embrace these truths over the course of these next several months as we walk through these texts together, understanding the opposition and the adversarial nature of our enemy who would oppose us, who would seek to deceive us, who would seek to crush us under the jaws of suffering, who would try to accuse us and slander us and whisper in our ear, who would accuse and slander others to us by whispering in our ear to bring about division. Father, may we put on the whole armor of God. May we get dressed every day and be strong in the strength of Your might, the might that You accomplished victory for us through Your Son. And let us go boldly before Your throne with our sins, confidently knowing that You hear us and we don't hear Him. Help us to take on His armor that we might be able to stand in whatever day we might find ourselves in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.